Last week, the subject that I tried to preach to you on from Acts chapter 27 was a, a passage of scripture that came to my mind pretty heavily earlier on in the week and just stayed there, and that's always uh, my preference. Other times, it seems like uh, no matter what I try to consider throughout the week, it just it comes and it goes. Uh, it's here for a while and then it leaves and you're going to something else. And it seemed like uh, in the last several days, my mind just bounced on, around on a number of things, but it finally settled on Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 through 4. Now, this is one of those passages in God's Word that to me, no matter what I'm doing, what I'm going through, where I'm at, so to speak, when I read it, it just makes me feel better. Just, just reading the words of these, of these first four verses in Deuteronomy chapter 32 uh, lists my spirits. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the first five books of the Bible. It's the fifth book of what's usually referred to as the five books of Moses. Uh, it's referred to as the, the law, the first five books as the law of Moses. Deuteronomy means repetition, it means summation. This book here kind of summarizes a lot of things that you have already read and hopefully studied in uh, especially Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the life of Moses. Moses lived to be 120. His death is recorded for us two chapters later in the last chapter of this book, in chapter 34. I've always uh, taken special note of the last words of men before they pass this scene of life. Uh, if men have not been truthful during their lifetime, oftentimes they will be when they realize these are my last words, even with the wicked. But of course, we know that Moses was a man of truth throughout his, his lifetime. His life is uh, you know, revealed to us beginning in the first uh, chapter there in the book of Exodus, first couple of chapters. And then his life uh, is on display for us in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and again here in Deuteronomy. So as Moses reaches a point in his life where he realizes not much time is left, he pins down these words as referred to as a song. Now, Moses also pinned down a song in Exodus chapter 15. That follows Exodus 14, which gives us the details of the exodus of Israel come out of the land of Egypt. And God blessed them come out as a nation uh, without anyone left behind. And we should know how the story goes, how God sent a strong east wind that blew upon the Red Sea and it parted two great walls of water. And Israel, the entire nation, marched across dry shot to the other side, totally and completely delivered by their great God. The Egyptians tried to follow suit, but they all perished in the waters as God brought the two great walls of water down upon them. Throughout uh, Moses' affiliation, you might say, with his association with the nation of Israel, it was one in which they were like thorns in his side. They were stubborn, they were stiff-necked, they were rebellious. Uh, yet when God even told Moses he would destroy them and make another nation of him, Moses interceded on their behalf and pleaded with God that he would not do that. And uh, his intercession uh, was effective on behalf of the nation of Israel. So we come to this portion of Moses' life here. And he writes these words, beginning in verse 1, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as a small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. 
because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Now Moses was Israel's leader. And Moses brought him out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness to carry him into the land of Canaan. But Moses will not get into Canaan's land. God will not allow him because the second time God told Moses to uh, bring water out of a rock, he was to speak to the rock. The first time he was to smite the rock, which he did, and water came out. The second time he was to speak to the rock. But Moses in his anger against the people of God did not speak to the rock, but rather he smote the rock the second time. He disobeyed God, and God spoke about it as failing to sanctify him in the sight of the people. In other words, Moses took glory away from God when he smote the rock the second time instead of obeying what the Lord said. Therefore, the Lord told him he would not be allowed to go into Canaan's land. God did allow Moses to go on top of the mountain and look over into Canaan's land. And he saw the beauty of the land. He saw the fruitfulness of the land. Uh, he saw the land that Israel indeed would occupy in the days ahead as Joshua would become their new leader and bring them across Jordan into that land. But we notice here where he says that the work of the Lord is perfect, just and right is he. Moses has no complaints. Moses recognized and realized that God was just in his dealings with him on a personal basis. But he begins this here, this song, by saying, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. It's as if Moses is saying that the heavens have an ear, and the earth likewise can hear the words that he was going to speak. Now, when you read the word heaven and the word earth, you'll find them used together frequently in the scripture. The Bible starts off that way. Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning God created what? The heaven and the earth. So there's been a connection between heaven and earth from the very beginning of time. And when Moses says, give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, it's because our heaven is in, has inhabitants. He heaven is a place where, uh, it's a literal place, just like this earth here. Heaven is just as little as this earth is. Heaven is a real, literal place that I believe one day will be fully and totally occupied by the elect family of God. But it's occupied now. It's occupied by God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It's occupied by the angels of God. I believe in Deuteronomy 4 and 34, he speaks about. When he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, but God works his will among the inhabitants of the earth and among the army of heaven. He says there's an army in heaven and there are inhabitants on this earth. And God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand, which means he's omnipotent, nor saith unto him, what doest thou, which brings to attention his sovereignty. Uh, that to me is, is one of the greatest verses in the Bible to teach those great truths of God's sovereignty and also God's omnipotence. And that God has a will and God is working his will. Now Jesus taught us to pray over here in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, when you pray, you pray in this manner. Come here to Matthew chapter 6. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth 
as it is in heaven. The Lord brings a connection between the two, between earth and between heaven. God has a will, and he's going to work that will. And we should desire that God's people would be submissive to that will here in this earth. I can assure you all in heaven are submissive to the heavenly will of the Father. In Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord said, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God is in heaven on his throne. This earth is his creation and it's the footstool of God. So Moses here says, Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. You see, heaven does have ears. You remember Joshua chapter 10? When Joshua entered into battle, Joshua spake to the Lord, apparently feeling needed more daylight saving time. <laughs> I wish they'd have left it alone. I like that extra hour of daylight saving time personally, but anyway, uh, he needed more daylight saving time. And the Bible says that God commanded the, the sun and the moon to stand still for about a day. And it did. The sun obeyed God. The moon obeyed God. It seems like all of God's creation obeys him far better than man does. In fact, I can't tell you of a, one instance in the word of God when God spake to his creation to do something that did not happen. He said, the sun and the moon stand still, and the sun and the moon, it stood still. In Matthew chapter 8, of course, we read of this first storm that the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples were in. And the Bible says there was a great tempest, meaning a great storm came upon the sea. And the disciples, being greatly afraid for their safety, cried to the Lord. And the Lord was asleep at the bottom of the ship, but the Lord was awakened by the cries of his disciples. And the Lord came to the top of the ship and spoke to the sea and the wind. And he said to the wind and to the sea, to peace be still. And the Bible says there was a great calm. Notice the greatness of the calm was in proportion to the greatness of the storm. There was a great storm, a great tempest, and God didn't bring about a, a small calm. He brought about a, a great calm. There needed to be a great calm because there was a great storm. And then the disciples marveled at this, and they said, uh, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey his voice? See, heaven has ears. The earth has ears. And when God speaks to his creation and gives a command, his creation always obeys. Always been the case. I encourage you to search the word of God. 2021 is getting ready to get started. I hope you are all eager beavers this morning in terms of getting ready to read the scripture and get started again here in January the 1st. I'm coming down the home stretch of 2020. I trust you are too. And this will be number 40 for me. I intend to start 41, January the 1st. I found out every time I've read the scripture, I found things I didn't find in the previous times. That'll always be the case because it's just an endless supply of great truth. Uh, it's inexhaustible because it's about an inexhaustible subject, you see. And so I just encourage you to find one time that God spoke to nature, one time that God spoke to his creation that is that nature or creation didn't respond in a positive way in terms of obeying what the voice of the Lord declared and said. I, I, I want you to look real close, okay? I want you to study it real diligently. And then I want you to come to me each Sunday and say, well, Brother Lawrence, here's what I found. I don't expect any meetings. 
Now, you can come tell me other things you found, but you won't come tell me you found that. I can tell you that now. I do not expect to find that in my 41st time of going through it. So he says, give ear, O ye heavens, and I shall speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Now, when he says the words of my mouth, Moses is not saying that these are words separate and apart from God's words. He's saying right the opposite. When he says, hear the words of my mouth, it's God using Moses as his mouthpiece here to speak to the nation of Israel. We believe that about the scriptures this morning. This book that I hold before you is called the scriptures. The word in Bible is a Latin word. That means a collection of books. comes from the Latin word biblios. Uh, the word in Bible is not in the Bible, actually. When the Bible refers to the, to the Bible, it refers to itself as the scriptures, primarily the scriptures, or the Word of God. And we read in 2 Timothy 3.16 where Paul says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Psalms 12, 6 and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. We believe the scripture is given to us by divine inspiration, therefore without error. We believe the scripture is kept by the power of God and is preserved, therefore we have it without error. So Moses says, hear the, the words of my mouth. He wasn't saying he was speaking separate and apart from God, but rather the words he was speaking were given to him by God. They were words God placed within his own mouth to speak to the nation of Israel. Now, it's a little different with me. Whenever I speak to you, I'm trying to speak to you from the Word of God, but I realize I may fail and I may make mistakes and I may say pot when I meant to say pan and say pan when I meant to say pot. And there'll be people who remind me of that. Trust me, they are. But anyway, that's okay. They're paying attention. But it's amazing to me what people pay attention to when I speak. The things they say to me are, are you know, I guess if you heard one thing I said, Maybe they heard some other things as well. I'm just kind of, it's interesting the things that they tell me about that they heard when I spoke, you know. But anyway, I won't get into that. So here we find where Moses is speaking to creation. Hear, O heavens, the words that I speak, and hear, give ear, O heavens, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. What Moses is about to say is going to be very, very important. It's like he wants the entire world of creation to hear this, not just the nation of Israel. Now, in the previous two chapters, you'll find where Moses says that he has brought heaven and earth to record this day to bear witness of what he's declaring to the nation of Israel. And now he uses it for the third time here in the beginning of this chapter. He says, My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew. Again, he says, Here are my words, or my doctrine, and my speech. This is not Moses operating independently of God. This is Moses being used as the mouthpiece of God. Moses is God's servant. Moses is God's minister. And he's presenting God's word to the nation of Israel at this particular time. He says, my doctrine. The word doctrine literally means to teach. And so whatever you're talking about that's found in the scripture, you know, that subject is the doctrine of the Bible. Now, sometimes we kind of separate it to mean those fundamental truths of salvation apart from practical truths. 
But the word doctrine literally means to teach. And so we believe that the word of God is given to us to teach us. So he says, my doctrine, my teaching shall drop as the rain, it shall distill as the dew. This tells me then what's under consideration is not of man, but of God. Uh, The origin of the doctrine of God is not with men, it's with God. Even Jesus said this in John chapter 7. He said, my doctrine, or the doctrine I speak is not my doctrine, but that of my heavenly Father. If any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it's of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, you'll be able to tell, am I saying something apart from God, or am I truly God's beloved Son representing God here on this earth? Now, the Bible gives us a lot of important things about the doctrine that's contained in the Scripture. I've already given you one. Let's go back and look at it one more time. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture, that means from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22 in the last verse. All Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. There is no Scripture that comes from any other source. There is no Scripture that comes from any other way other than by the inspiration of God. The word inspiration means God breathed. God chose men from different walks of life. Over 40-some men God used to pin down the words of God. Yes, God used men as human writers, but they pinned down the words that God inspired them to pin down. So he says, all Scripture is given the inspiration of God and is profitable. The Scriptures are profitable. Profitable for what? For doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. The word doctrine, meaning teaching, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable. Doctrine has to declare to you what is right. And for correction is to teach you what is not correct, or not right. And then it's to teach you how to stay right. You know, if you want things to come out right, as I've said many times, you've got to do right. To do right, you've got to think right. And to think right, you've got to be taught right. It all is a chain. That's how it all starts. How can you expect something to come out right if you're not taught right? So we need to teach right so we can think right, so we can behave right and act right. Then things come out right. I hear somebody say every once in a while, well, you know, nothing seems to be working out. There's a reason why things don't work out. <laughs> uh, things just don't, don't seem to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, coming out like I want them to. Well, usually there's a reason for all of that. All right, so if we want things to come out right, then we got to do right. Do right, we need to think right. To think right, we need to be taught right and instructed right. And the scriptures do that for us. The scriptures then are profitable. Titus chapter 2 verse 1, Paul tells this young minister to speak those things which become sound doctrine. The word sound means healthy. If you want to be spiritually healthy, you need to study the doctrine of the Bible. The doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the virgin birth in Jesus Christ, the, the doctrine of his sinless nature, his sinless life he lived, the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of salvation in terms of redemption and justification, reconciliation, so forth and so on. When you study the doctrine that's contained in God's word, these great truths, it'll be spiritual nourishment for your soul. It'll make you healthy in the Lord. Speak those saints which become sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 4, 6, Paul tells Timothy, he says, if you 
uh, teach God's people, instruct God's people in these things. It says, uh, you shall be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. The word good here means valuable. It means beautiful. The doctrine of the Bible is a beautiful doctrine. The doctrine of the Bible is a valuable doctrine. The doctrine of election, they're so misunderstood by so many people, it's not viewed that way, but I can assure you, when you see yourself as a depraved, unworthy sinner by nature, with your only hope in Jesus Christ, then you'll appreciate the wonderful doctrine of election. It becomes a beautiful doctrine that God he loved you when you were unlovable. It's a beautiful doctrine. When you understand it right, it's a beautiful doctrine, a wonderful doctrine. And apart from the doctrine of God's electing grace, there'd be no family of God and no people in heaven. Don't have time to branch off into that this morning, although the temptation is great. All right? So speak those sounds which become sound doctrine and good doctrine. It is profitable doctrine. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy in verses 15 and 16, that he should meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly unto them, that thy profiting may appear unto all. He said to take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Two things, Timothy, you're to take heed to. Yourself, number one. Before I can uh, effectively try to teach you something, I've got to take heed to my own teachings. You know what I mean? I've got to apply my own teachings. <laughs> I've got to take heed to the things I try to encourage you to take heed to. You know, I have to pastor myself as trying to, well as to pastor you. <laughs> you ever wonder who pastors the pastor? <laughs> he needs pastoring sometimes. And uh, there's one minister who calls me every once in a while, and he said, I, I, I call you because you're my pastor. <laughs> and I, I need a little help. I need a little advice and whatever. So I do the very best I can for him. All right, he says, in so doing, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. I want to save myself. Now, I'm not talking about for heaven now. I hope you, we all understand that here this morning. But I need saving from error to truth. I need saving from darkness to light. I need saving from ignorance to, to information and knowledge. Just like Romans 10.1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, uh, well, let me go back. No, Romans 10, 1, he says, uh, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved. For I bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. See, the salvation here for Israel was not eternal. The salvation for Israel was that Paul wanted them delivered uh, from uh, the ignorance that they were in to the truth of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ignorance puts us in bondage. Ignorance puts us in prison. Truth frees us. Christ told his disciples, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Not only do I want to save myself by taking heed to myself and to the doctrine, but if I do so and preach faithfully to you and you do likewise, you likewise shall be saved. I'm talking about once again in a timely way. I'm talking about what we refer to sometimes as time salvation. That means a deliverance that you experience in this lifetime, in your earthly journey, that the scriptures enable you to experience because it informs you and straightens your thinking out where you can think properly, where you can uh, understand the truth of God's word that brings freedom to your mind and freedom to your heart. So we have sound doctrine and profitable doctrine and saving doctrine. We have good doctrine. Now, this is in contrast to some other types of doctrines found in the Bible. 
And when you study the word doctrine slash doctrines, plural, you will notice that when the doctrine, when the word doctrine is in the plural in the word of God, it will always have reference to that which is not the true doctrine. Notice with me. We'll come over here to Matthew 15, 8 and 9. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells his disciples, he said, how well did I, or did the Jews, right, excuse me, how well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, you'll honor me with your mouth uh, and with your tongue, but your heart is far from me. He says, teaching for doctrine, and he said, for in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. He said, you're teaching for doctrine now the commandments of men, which is not God's doctrine. It's not sound doctrine. It's not good doctrine. It's not proper doctrine. And it's leading God's people astray to where when they enter into what they call worship, they worship me in vain. There's vain worship. There are people who claim to be worshiping God. And Jesus said that type of worship is a vain worship. He says, for in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine, doctrines, plural, the commandments of men. In the uh, book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 9, Paul said, Be not carried away with strange doctrines. The word strange means foreign, foreign to the teachings of God's word. Be not carried away with strange doctrines. He said, For it's good that the heart be established with grace and not with meats. Now, what's the verse right above that? Verse 8. He says, Jesus Christ, the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. That's sound doctrine, you see. And there were those in that day, especially trying to bring among the Hebrew people, uh, that they needed to continue to still worship God under Moses' law. And therefore, Jesus was not the Messiah, and the Lord Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ was not God's beloved Son. The Apostle Paul, throughout the book of Hebrews, shows the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to everything that the Jews were associated with. Showing the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ to Moses and to Joshua and to the law in Canaan's land, etc., etc. All these were blessings in the Old Testament day, but Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all those things. And he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Notice how that's worded. Jesus Christ the same. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ doesn't change. I'm thankful that Jesus Christ today is the same Jesus Christ he was a year ago. And back a decade ago and a century ago, and you go all the way back to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the same today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that word forever will capture every tomorrow that's under consideration. He didn't say yesterday, today, and uh, um, tomorrow. He said yesterday, today, and forever, you see. Forever captures all the tomorrows, does it not? I don't know how many tomorrows there's going to be at this point. Uh, Yesterday, today was tomorrow. Now, today is not tomorrow. Today's today, right? And yesterday was present. Yesterday's past. Now, I'm looking forward to tomorrow, but when tomorrow comes, it becomes the present. And so forth and so on. You understand. I hope I didn't confuse you with all that. But anyway, you understand what I'm trying to say. Jesus Christ is the same today. He's the same yesterday. He's the same forever. Therefore, be not carried away with strange doctrines. Be not carried away... Um, with those uh, doctrines that are contrary to the true doctrine that's found contained in the scripture here. In the book of um, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul said, And be got carried away with every wind of doctrine. Be, be ye not as children uh, carried away with every wind of doctrine. Anything and everything that can be believed 
is a spouse sometimes and proclaim to God's people as if it came from the Bible. Now, Regina made me feel good the other day. She was talking about some, they had a couple Bible questions uh, where they had, uh, her mother had one the other day and they were asking me about it, one thing or another. And it was something she uh, said and I told her that was just absolutely foreign to the Bible. And she said, oh yeah, I remember it says to the left of Genesis, the right of Revelation. I said, that's right. She remembered I said that. Uh, sometimes somebody would tell me something. I said, they said, is, is that in the Bible? I said, no, it's not in the Bible. He said, well, they said they got it out of the Bible. I said, yeah, they got it way out of the Bible. To the left of Genesis, to the right of Revelation. That's how far out of the Bible they got it. It's just not there. So you've got every wind of doctrine. You've got strange doctrines. You've got the doctrines of men. Commandments of men proclaimed to be as, as the doctrines of God when they're not. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, in verse uh, 17, 18, and 19, you're going to find where John writes to two churches. He writes to the church at Pergamos. And he, the Lord has examined this church. He says, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast those in the church there who teach the doctrine of Balaam. Well, Revelation a long ways away from the book of Numbers, isn't it? Now, I'm not just talking about in the Bible. Yeah, Numbers is way over here to the left and Revelation way over here to the right. But there's a lot of time between Revelation and Numbers back here. But John says there's people over here at the church at Pergamos that's teaching the doctrine of Balaam that's found taught back here in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. Now, if you're familiar with the story, and I hope that you are, you'll know that Balaam was uh, a prophet who Balak of the Moabites tried to hire to curse the nation of Israel. He saw the nation of Israel as a threat. And he tried his best to hire Balaam with wards of divination and everything else to come and prophesy against Israel. But Balaam understood enough to know that he could not curse those whom God had not cursed. He could not bless those whom God had not blessed. And he knew God had blessed Israel, so he, all he could do was pronounce a blessing on Israel. And three different times, Balaam tried to get him to curse Israel, and he wouldn't do it. Now, Balaam is referred to over here in the New Testament, also in the book of Jude, and also in the book of 2 Peter. So he becomes a character worth noting. And now there's those in that church at Pergamos that's teaching for doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam. So what ended up with Balaam? Balaam ended up being slain, by the way. Balaam eventually taught the nation of Israel, to go into idolatry and to commit fornication and adultery with the nations of this world. He finally did that. After he did that, God had him slain in battle. In some manner, in some way, over here in the New Testament church, the church at Pergamos had people in that church who was promoting the doctrine, the teaching of Balaam, trying to get God's people to depart from the true and living God and enter into idolatry. And then, he says, you got them in the church that teach the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The Hebrew word for Balaam and the Greek word for Nicolaitans is basically the same. And it boils down to this. There was some influence in that church by some people who were trying to sway God's people to become more like the world, to uh, be conformed to this world rather than being transformed and to prove what is that good and perfect acceptable will of God. And they were pulling God's people away from the true and living God and true worship, you see. And they were infil had been infiltrating the church 
And the Lord Jesus Christ said, you've got these uh, teaching the doctrine of Balaam and also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And then the next church, the church at Thyatira, said, you got those there, they're teaching the doctrine of Jezebel. Well, it's a long ways away from Revelation in 1 and 2 Kings over here, isn't it? And yet the influence of this wicked woman that's taught us over here in 1 Kings and 2 Kings has made its way centuries down the road over here into the church at Thyatira. He said, I got somewhat against you for that. He's identifying a problem inside the church. There are those inside that church teaching the doctrine of Jezebel. Well, what about Jezebel? Jezebel was a wife of Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel made one of the most wicked teams that you'll ever read about in the Bible or history, period. Ahab was a very wicked ruler among the, among the uh, nation of Israel in that day, the kingdom of Israel. He married Jezebel, who was even more wicked than he was, if that's possible. And I guess the most noteworthy story that you find between those two is when Jezebel came up with a plan to solve a problem that Ahab had. Remember, Ahab wanted a vineyard belonged to a man named Nabal. Wanted his vineyard. He wouldn't let him have the vineyard. It was very special to him for different reasons. But Ahab wanted Ahab was all down in, in the dumps because he couldn't get his vineyard. Jezebel said, well, that's quite easy. Says, we'll just bring false witnesses against him and we'll have him stoned and you can have the vineyard. Ahab liked that plan. That's exactly what took place. He winds up with the vineyard. You know what, how, him and, uh, how Jezebel and Ahab wound up? <laughs> Ahab is slain in battle. And the dogs, they come and wash his chariot out. The blood was in his chariot in the place where the dogs came and licked his blood up the very place where he had the other man slain. And Jezebel has to flee for her life. And Jezebel being, uh, winds up being cast from a, from a window down to the pavement below and she's trounced under by the horses that come along and all that's left of her is just a skeleton. That's what happened to Jezebel and Ahab. But Jezebel, her, her life, her influence, way back then is being felt way back over here the church at Thyatira. Calls it the doctrine of Jezebel. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The doctrine of Balaam. Old Testament characters, hundreds of years, live hundreds of years before what's under consideration over here. But the influence of their lives and their teachings has reached way over here. And there's teachings among God's people today in plenty of places called churches that the origin goes way back hundreds of years. Way back, hundreds of years. All right, so he says, my doctrine shall drop as the rain. My doctrine, this is the doctrine of God. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. It shall distill as the dew. Could we live without rain? Can we live without the dew? Dew is really important in certain parts of the country. Dew falls silently, doesn't it? It doesn't make a noise. I never have heard it doing in my life. I've heard it rain. I, I mean, you know, especially if you've ever been in a, in a house with a tin roof. Boy, if you can't sleep under those conditions, you just can't sleep. I mean, you're in a house and it's got a tin roof and you lay down that rain coming down that tin roof. I don't know what it is about it. It just puts you right into sleep. Uh, we got these little sound machines now and uh, I, I, I need to find one that uh, simulates roof, uh, I mean rain on a tin roof. That's what I need. My doctrine is drop as the rain. The benefit of rain, it softens the earth, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed the soil after there's been a long drought? 
First of all, it gets dusty, and then it begins crusty, and then it gets hard. So hard you could pour water on top of it. It seemed like it would just run off instead of saturating down and going down into the soil, right? But you start getting rain, enough rain, and next thing you know, the soil begins to soften up, doesn't it? And that grass that looked like it was dead all of a sudden revives. You know, I said, well, uh, my grass is all dead. And they get, they get a rain. I said, well, maybe it wasn't as dead as I thought it was. <laughs> you know what rain will do? It'll manifest grass that's dead and make it look even deader. Or it will show that grass hasn't died yet and revives. Anything that will revive, it's still got life. Always been kind of interesting to me among the old Baptists that we call our meetings, our you know, special meetings, many, many different names. Sometimes we call them fifth weekend meetings, sometimes communion meetings or annual meetings, associational meetings, or we call it fellowship meetings. Uh, we may have a Thanksgiving meeting, and we put a label to all kind of meetings that we have, except one word that we ought to use oftentimes, that's the word revival meeting. The world uses that, the denominational world uses the word revival when they ought to be using the word resurrection. They're trying to have resurrection meetings. They're trying to get people who are dead in sin alive in Christ, which they cannot do. Only God can do that. But I do believe in revival meetings. I try to, I look forward to a revival meeting right here at this place at least once every seven days. I'm already revived this morning. I mean, I'm already feeling uh, ten times better than I did before I got here. Uh, yesterday I was getting this text and that text and uh, this person's got sick and this person's in the hospital and uh, this person's not going to be able to come for a while. I mean, I, I'm walking around my chin dragging around. i just be quite frank about it. I was looking for some good news. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was wanting to get something to lift me up. And so here this morning, just as soon as I drove up on the churchyard, I started feeling better. Just to see this building made me feel better. Because I knew on the inside of this building would be lovely people gathering together to worship God in spirit and also in truth. I could just see your faces and your countenance and everything. My spirits got lifted up. And then when we started singing those hymns of Zion, the next thing you know, I'm on another level. I'm climbing the ladder, my friends. And trying to preach to you here this morning has got me a, a lift up higher than I deserve, but I, I, I'm getting revived. I tell you, I am feeling good. All right? I want you to feel good. I want you to be revived. You can't revive something if, it's not, if there's not life there. Only life can be revived. And so every Sunday we need to have a revival meeting. We need to start calling our special meetings revival meetings. Because we are in the business trying to revive people. Not resurrect them, but revive them. So he said, my doctrine shall drop as the rain. My doctrine is coming from heaven. My doctrine is the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I will ascribe ye greatness unto his name. I'm telling you this morning, uh, uh, it's just impossible for me to find the right words I'd like to use in trying to talk about the greatness of God. He's greater in any way that I could possibly express it or come up with it. But uh, give me an opportunity anyway. Let's go into 1 Timothy 3 and 15. And the Apostle Paul said, Great is the mystery of godliness. He said, God manifest in the flesh. I want you to notice this cycle right here. God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached on among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received in the glory. When you read the four gospels of Christ, you find this mystery of godliness brought to our attention. It begins with God manifest in the flesh. How can that be? 
How could Almighty God become man? He did. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb of a woman called Mary, in the womb of a virgin of a woman called Mary. And he was born into this world here. He was God manifest in the flesh. When they saw Jesus, they saw the Father. How many times do you find people asking, especially Thomas, in John chapter 14, it says unto Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, I've been with you such a long period of time and you've not seen the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's God manifest in the flesh. There's a mystery to all of that, isn't it? Justified in the Spirit, when Jesus Christ was baptized in rivers, the River Jordan, heaven opened up. And the Spirit of God descended down the bodily form and shape of a dove. And it fell right on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a, and a voice rang out, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Yes, he was justified in the Spirit. And then he was seen of angels. Angels attended his birth. Gabriel came and said unto Mary, and also unto Joseph, and, and to uh, you know, and to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He was seen of angels. Angels attended his temptation, the mountain of temptation. When Christ went on that mountain in the confrontation with the devil, you're going to find where he was led of the Spirit into the wilderness, but he was strengthened by the power of the Spirit, and angels came and ministered unto him after that experience. And the resurrection, when the women there came on the first day of the week, who did God have to meet them? They didn't come just to an empty tomb. Yeah, the tomb was empty concerning the body of Christ. But there was an angel on each end of, the, of where the body of Christ had laid, at the head and also the foot. And the angel said to him, Why seek you the living among the dead? Come see the place where the Lord lay. Yes, he was seed of angels. He was preached among the Gentiles. Even though the gospel was first to the Jew, the, God, the Gentiles was like that little woman that came to where Christ was at. You know, she came asking for help to heal her daughter. And the Lord said, I'm not sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She said, yea, Lord, truth, Lord. And then uh, they said, uh, you know, it's not me for me to give uh, uh, these things to the dogs, having reference to the Gentiles. And she said, yea, truth, Lord, but the dogs who eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I'm telling you, the crumbs that fall from the table of this master are better, my friends, than something you can get on the table out here in the world. I'll tell you that right now. The crumbs had fallen, and they had eaten those crumbs that fell from the master's table. Yes, preached among the Gentiles, and believed on in the world. What a mystery that is. Great is the mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit. Preached among the Gentiles. Seen of angels. Preached among the Gentiles. Believed on in the world, and received in the glory. When you go to Acts chapter 1, you'll see where the Lord Jesus Christ departed this earth. He went right into heaven. That whole cycle, I'm telling you, of God manifesting the flesh, God coming down from heaven, and all the things I've already mentioned. Now, all these could be expanded into a sermon, sermon by, excuse me, by themselves. But then receive back up into glory. Aren't you glad he went back to glory? Aren't you glad he's not on this earth today? Aren't you glad that there's not a tomb with a body in it over there and there's a, a you know, a, a name at, the, at that tomb saying Jesus Christ? Aren't you glad that's the, not the case? There's a, there's a grave over in Andrew, North Carolina, right outside Andrew Primitive Baptist Church. And my mother and my father are buried there. It says Stokes F. Large and Alice C. Large 
or on that. I know the body of my dad is in that tomb. I know the body of my mother lies right there. But I'm telling you, there's a tomb in this world where you go to it says Jesus Christ because he's not there. He's resurrected from the dead. He came out of that tomb. My mother and my father's body is there, but not the body of Jesus, brethren. I'm really revived now. Aren't you glad heaven opened up? Aren't you glad he was received up in the glory? That's the doctrine of Christ. That's the truth of God's word. That the Lord Jesus Christ left heaven's pure world and came here to represent his people. He lived a sinless life. He lived a holy life, a harmless life, separate apart from sinners. He went to Calvary and offered there a perfect offering, a perfect sacrifice unto the Father. And the Father received it. And receiving that offering and sacrifice, it made your body uh, sure, my friends, and your soul and your spirit, it made it all fit for glory. And just like heaven opened up and Jesus Christ received in the glory, the day is coming when heaven's going to open up and the Lord's going to come again and he's going to bring uh, his holy angels with him and the souls and spirits of his departed saints that's already left to be with him in heaven is going to return here to be reunited with the body and that body, soul, and spirit is going to enter into glory. It's going to take us right on in there, my friends. Yes, heaven's going to open up and we're going to go right into glory with Jesus. My time's gone here this morning. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew. I'm, I'm telling you, there are times, in fact, it's just like every week. By the time Sunday morning comes here, my soul is parched. My soul is dry. I, I, need, I need something to satisfy my thirst. And this world's not going to do it. Will I come to God's house and bless to hear preaching or bless to try to preach myself? You know, it just, it just refreshes my heart and refreshes my soul. It's just like that rain that comes down, down from heaven. As, as Proverbs 25, 25 says, says, as cold waters are to a thirsty soul, so is good news from the far country. I remember as a, as a boy growing up on that tobacco farm, and it'd be July, and it'd be 95 degrees, and we had to walk those long rows of tobacco, and it was hot, and it was, you couldn't feel a, any breeze whatsoever, any wind blowing, but I knew at the end of that row, there was a jug of ice water. <laughs> at the end of that row was a jug of ice water, and I just couldn't hardly wait to get to it. And I get to it and just sit out and, and, and pour the water out of that thing. I'm telling you, that's the most refreshing thing I could have uh, had at that time. And that's just nothing compared to how my soul feels when God blesses me to read the truth, understand the truth, hear the truth, preach the truth, embrace the truth, and try to live the truth, brother. It just brings a, a refreshment into my heart and my soul that there's no other doing anything else in this world could possibly compare to. Um, we didn't get finished out here this morning. But um, anyway, love you all. Thank God for you all. Look forward to seeing you all every opportunity I can, every Lord's Day in the Lord's house that I might be revived 
to face the challenge of life for one more day. One more day, right? God gives us strength for the day so we can take one step forward every single day that we live here looking up to Jesus. He's going to get us through, brother. He's going to get us through. I'm confident about that. One way or the other, I'm like the Hebrew children. They said, we, one thing for sure, we're not going to bow down to the idol, O king, but this much we know, our God is able to deliver us from this burning fire, and he shall deliver us out of thine hand. God is able to deliver us out of this coronavirus that's, uh, that has put us into the condition we're in. He's able to do that, and this thing I do know, I know he's going to deliver us one day, one way or the other, and we're going to be with the Lord in glory, and the things that we've affected us here in this life are never going to bother us ever, ever, ever again. 